You're listening to a History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. In this podcast, a keynote from Partitions and Borders, a comparative and interdisciplinary conference. The conference was jointly organised by University College Dublin and Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi, and took place in UCD on the 24th and 25th of May, 2018. The conference received the financial support of the UCD Research Seed Funding Programme, Decade of Centenary's Internal Award Scheme, 2016-2018, to and also the support of the School of History, the School of Politics and International Relations, and the UCD International Office. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. The third keynote of the conference was given by Peter Leary from University College Dublin. His lecture was entitled, Mind Your P's and Q's, The Past and the Irish Border. Thank you also to uh, Connor and to the other organisers for hosting this, um, I think, important conference at this particular time. And thank you especially for giving me the opportunity to speak. My talk today is about the past and the Irish border, which I possibly, possibly could have made a little clearer. I'll mostly focus on, on the mid-20th century, which is the primary period of my research interests, roughly the, the, the middle half of the century between, uh, the half century between 1922 and 1972. That period in the, the life of the Irish border, if we can speak of the border as having a life, which I think we can now that it has a Twitter account of its own. <laughs> that period in the, in the life of the Irish border, between the end or the tail end of the revolutionary years, and 1972, which is, I think, in several ways a, a revolutionary year, a watershed, uh, the fall of Stormont, as it had been, the end of the beginning of the Troubles, and crucially for the history of the border, although in some respects this would only become clear with hindsight, some of it very recent hindsight, the last year before both Ireland and Britain joined what we now know as the European Union. So that's broadly my temporal focus, but I want to begin instead with the very recent past by taking you back just over six years to the 12th of March 2012. It was the week before St. Patrick's Day and the British Prime Minister David Cameron and Taoiseach Enda Kenny issued a joint statement following a successful meeting at Downing Street in London. British-Irish relations the next decade, the document was called. By and large, it was a fond and forward-looking text structured around such worthy headings as accelerating recovery, growth and job creation, addressing global challenges, and, of course, working together in Europe. <laughs> in the press conference that follows, followed, both men spoke warmly of the Anglo-Irish relationship. Friendship, cultural connections and familial ties would continue to form the basis of a strong political, trading and European partnership. But there were striking differences in their statements. The more workmanlike of the two, Kenny covered the greater ground, offering details of their discussions on the Irish in Britain, commerce, agribusiness and the then ongoing and still, still much celebrated success of the executive in Belfast. He looked forward to cooperating during Ireland's EU presidency the following year. Famously 
superficial and with greater emphasis on style, Cameron opted for alliteration. If you think of former occasions when prime ministers and Taoiseachs have stood in this room, or indeed in a room in Dublin, we would have been talking about political processes, prisons, parades and policing. Instead of this, he informed the assembled journalists, there was another P, which is an entirely positive agenda. Now, like me, you may, <clears throat> you may have other P's that spring to mind when you ponder <laughs> David Cameron's legacy. The party political parlour games that produced our present predicament. <laughs> but along with power sharing and partition, the P, perhaps most striking by its absence from the list, and the reason why I've started with this today is, of course, the past. And I mean this in at least two senses. On the one hand, as you will all be aware, aware the 10-year period envisioned in British-Irish relations the next decade, beginning in 2012, corresponds as to, to our current decade of centenaries, commemorating the series of events encompassing war, civil strife and revolution that culminated in partition and the founding of two separate polities on the island. It was the formative moment of the border, the Irish state and the United Kingdom in its current form. And yet, while it did receive a brief mention in the agreed text, and indeed in the Taoiseach's comments, this cluster of anniversaries was an aspect of the relationship to which the British Prime Minister, perhaps tellingly, made no reference whatsoever. On the other hand, and it is possibly unfair to pin too much on who said precisely what at a particular press conference, the inescapable impression now, when you read what was said that day, is the distance we have travelled since. For someone like me and many of you more used to looking at documents from 50 or 100 years ago, and also, I suppose, of thinking about history as we so often do in Ireland as something living, belonging to our own time, it seems uncanny to peer across five years and see another country, a moment belonging to a past that is, in key respects, already dead. But this combination of deep continuities and sudden, almost dizzying change is often characteristic of international borders, and the Irish border in particular. And so the border, it seems to me, is a place where multiple paths or histories converge and coalesce in constantly shifting combinations. It is a product of 19th and 20th century political, constitutional and military conflicts, rooted in part at least in the colonial and religious struggles in which European modernity was forged. Long-established county boundaries were almost overnight transformed into international ones by the Government of Ireland Act 1920 and the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921 after centuries of relative insignificance. A good example of what I mean of how these multiple histories of different scales, both time scales and geographic or spatial ones, can come together on the border are the still disputed waters of Loch Foyle. <clears throat> when Ireland was first delineated into two territories by the Government of Ireland Act in 1920, it was envisaged by the framers of the Act that Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, as it was, would both remain devolved areas within the United Kingdom. As such, no question of territorial waters arose. In contrast, the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921 established all of Ireland 
including its islands and seas, as a dominion of the British Empire with the proviso that Northern Ireland, already in place, could opt out. Now, as we all know, it duly did, but whether it took its adjacent waters with it remained a running sore. In 1923, the owners of a steamship called the Greyhound defended their right to sell strong drink on Sunday en route through Belfast Lock to Bangor on the grounds that once they left the harbour, they had left the jurisdiction of the Northern Parliament and its Sabbatarian licensing laws. When the Irish Boundary Commission met in 1925, the Irish Society, the City of London body that had undertaken the 17th century plantation of Derry, produced a charter issued by Charles II in 1662 to assert that the foil up to the high water mark on the Donegal shoreline and as far south as Straban belonged to it and therefore to Northern Ireland. This claim, in turn, was challenged by the fishing communities of Inishon, of villages such as Moville and Carrowkeel or Quigley's Point in Donegal, whose legal counsel argued that the creation of a private ownership of tidal waters was already by then banned by Magna Carta, and that under the Gaelic Brehan Law and the O'Neills and O'Donnells, whose departure or flight to the continent in 1607 had enabled the transfer of their lands to the London Company, no such exclusive ownership had been permitted. Fascinating as these arguments were and are for historians and lawyers, for several decades after partition, they were largely immaterial as, owing to the territorial dispute, nobody could agree, or would agree, whether it was the courts in Dublin or Belfast that had the right to adjudicate the case. During World War II, Dublin had neither the inclination nor any real real option but to acquiesce while Britain used Lockfoyle for naval purposes. And since 1952, a succession of bodies, starting with the Foyle Fisheries Commission, have jointly managed these waters, effectively placing the dispute in suspended animation. But whether they will be British or European after Brexit remains unknown. The failure of the Irish Boundary Commission to redraw the border more logically or clearly in 1925 left numerous anomalies behind. The well-known Dromully salient that we probably mentioned yesterday, a small area home to 60 families in the south, completely inaccessible by road or rail except through Northern Ireland. The settlement of Pettigo, which we certainly spoke about, with fewer than 400 inhabitants, divided along the line of the River Termon running through it. John Murray of Gorton Eden awoke to find that when he lay asleep at night, the border which partitioned his house now ran through his bed and straight across his heart. (laughs) Or so he told reporters from the Irish Times in 1958. Just a few weeks earlier, it had been suggested that the border ran slightly higher up when the County Fermanagh Unionist Association objected unsuccessfully to Murray's inclusion on the local electoral register on the grounds that he slept with only his head in that county. The rest of his body, including his heart, the objectors maintained, lay in the south, in County Cavan, which was a different local authority area as well as a different state. As we discussed in John Coakley's plenary session uh, yesterday, Local elections were often closely fought and folded largely, if 
in perfectly along confessional lines. Fortunately for John, he paid his rates in Northern Ireland, and so his right to vote in Fermanagh was upheld. Reporters and other visitors of this kind were a familiar sight in the Murray's border house, which had appeared in newspapers and nationalist propaganda, including this one from Ireland's Right to Unity, a pamphlet issued by the All-Party Anti-Partition Conference and first published in 1949. The border cut down the middle of the dining-come-bedroom at the centre of the home where John Murray slept, and a favourite trick was to sit on a chair in the six counties while eating off the table in the 26, or to pass the salt back and forward between north and south. Callers could sit on a sofa drinking tea while the border ran straight through them, and one uh, American clergyman expressed his delight at being able to collect a pencil used to write an autograph with hands in one state while their owner was seated in another. This was one of several similar tricks that the Murrays would perform, including lighting lamps or serving tea in similar fashion. But there is a, a longer story here as well. The thatched farmhouse in which John Murray and his brother Phelan lived dated from at least the middle of the 19th century. James Fee, a grandfather of their mother Margaret, pictured here with their sister Maggie and father, also John, had acquired the five-room dwelling on six and a half acres of land after returning from America with enough money to marry and settle down. In her later years, Mrs Murray would recall hearing that the house was newly built by a local builder named Pat Drum, a popular name in the locality. But comparison with both the Cavan and Fermanagh ordnance surveys from the 1830s suggests that an older dwelling was extended with at least one outbuilding or office also added. It was a small plot of poor gravelly ground, the kind that would briefly turn a neighbour, Sean Quinn, into the richest man in Ireland before he lost it all. <laughs> but the Murray House was originally a public one, situated in a prime location between Ballyconnell in County Cavan and Derry Lynn in Fermanagh. Positioned at a crossroads in the shadow of a large oak plantation, it had been a regular rendezvous for well-attended open-air dances, and the shelves that held the spirits and beer were located in Fermanagh, while the public parts of the bar were on the other side. And so it was no accident that the house which Mrs Murray had in turn inherited from her father had always occupied an intermediate, even liminal location, None could have imagined at the time that it was built the significance that this would later assume. Parts of the borderlands can be said to have long been a kind of ambiguous frontier zone, a marginal in-between site of uncertainty and encounter. Between rival religious communities, the post-plantation Protestant North and Catholic South, industrial and agricultural Ireland, or even earlier, between the rival spheres of influence of the pale and Gaelic Ulster. But partition itself still produced a profound sense of dislocation. With the United Kingdom, Ireland and the nine-county province of Ulster all divided, no previously imagined community was left intact. Although the county boundaries on which the border had been based had grown in significance uh, had long been in place and grown in significance following the 1898 Local Government Act, they were not the only units 
to which people had become accustomed. The rival, often overlapping spiritual divisions, frequently traversed the county lines, as did administrative spaces constructed through earlier policy initiatives. The poor law unions in place since the famine had been centred on workhouses, usually located in market settlements. Such towns were also often seats of urban and rural district council areas that assumed the names of the towns along with an identifying number. Clonus number two and Ballyshannon number two were both in the northern county Fermanagh, now cut off from their southern sighted eponymous towns, while Derry number two and Straban number two were likewise both in Free State County Donegal. As the Church of Ireland minister of one partition, <coughs> partition parish put it, we never thought about the differences between one county and another before that change was made. And of course it was April Fool's Day, 1923, what better date, the start of the financial year, that saw the arrival of the customs barrier that quickly came to define the border for many. The novel boundary cut across established catchment areas and patterns of movement of trade, movement and trade, from the widely seen as natural connections between Derry and Donegal to those of smaller towns and villages, like Ochnacloy with its long-established hinter hinterland in neighbouring County Monaghan. Passing the border now meant inconvenience, delay, long detours in places to reach one of a limited number of custom stations, and frustration at the hands of an inflexible bureaucracy for those carrying goods, even non-dutiable commodities, had to be recorded for statistical purposes. Farmers, less used then than now to filling forms, were loath to do so. Car owners, a still small but growing band, were required, required to deposit a bond and obtain a triptych pass to be stamped in and out during daylight hours. After dark, the customs men remained on duty not to enable the cars to pass, but to stop them. For others, the very idea of a customs border was practically absurd. Mrs Mary Wilson, a former school, uh, former school teacher from Raffoe in County Donegal, was still obliged for anything of a superior class to go to Derry, while septuagenarian Presbyterian minister Alexander Lecky objected to having to go into a foreign country to buy a fashionable suit as the local shops were just not up to date. John Sims, a solicitor in Lifford, in the same county, worried that if he sent his wife out for a herring, she had to cross the customs boundary. Perhaps he worried that she wouldn't come back. A system of bonded warehouses was put in place, not, it seems to me, unlike Boris Johnson's proposal for maximum facilitation, or Max Fax, so far as I can tell, to allow goods arriving, for instance, at Derry Port, but destined for the southern counties, to pass through relatively unimpeded. But dairy tea importer Neil McLoon explained how it worked. If we get an order for three chests of tea for, from County Sligo or Cavan, we have this tea in bond in Derry. We have to go to the customs authorities here. The bonded warehouse only opens two days in a week, and if we want to get an order on a Friday, we cannot get it out of the bond until the following Tuesday. If we do not get it out in sufficient time to make it to the border, then we have to wait till Wednesday. The flow of his most global of merchandise had come to a virtual standstill. So in a sense, what I'm saying is that the border links 
personal, local and family histories of shopping, everyday life, villages, congregations and communities, and the people, animals and things that crossed it, not only to our present Brexit preoccupations, nor indeed the national narratives of Ireland and Britain and their relationship, but also to international, even global histories. The remapping and remaking of Europe and elsewhere that followed the First World War. The decline of empire, globalisation and European integration. It was the international rise of economic protectionism following the 1929 financial crisis that provided at least part of the backdrop to the first major wave of cross-border smuggling, mostly cattle and other livestock, in 1932 during the so or after 1932 during the so-called economic war. That year, when Gertrude Gaffney of the Irish Independent cautiously broached the, the, the subject with a border farmer named only as Barney, she wondered whether perhaps it wouldn't do to talk about it in public. Talk about it? Sure, the whole country's doing nothing else. There never was as much crack about here as far back as I can remember. And of course, the global, con global conflict produced a second great smuggling outbreak during World War II, characterised this time by butter and bacon or white flour and tea, concealed about the persons of the women, who, of the mostly women, who then dominated the trade. By 1940, one exasperated Dundalk guard was writing to his superiors. There is an urgent need of women searchers on the customs staff, as it is housewives who are the principal offenders. Men searchers are helpless. On several occasions at the trains at Dundalk station, women have told the customs men that they have had butter and dared them to come and get it. <laughs> How deeply the moral economy of smuggling became entrenched was illustrated just after the war at Christmas time in 1949, when Francis Ford of Kiskillen, County Leitrim, sued Mary McPartland of the same townland for alleged slander. She hadn't accused him of smuggling, quite the opposite. With British rationing still in place, she had given him a turkey to take into Northern Ireland from where she planned to send it on to her sister in England. But when Ford told her that it had been seized, she had complained to neighbours that he had eaten it himself. <laughs> he won the case. <laughs> for damage to his name and reputation as an honest smuggler. <laughs> a smuggling, of course, is a broad umbrella that ranged from illicit duty-free shopping to more serious criminal operations, and a degree of moral distinction was drawn between commercial and domestic activities. But involvement at any level fostered an antagonism with authority that could appear sharper than those dividing the smugglers amongst themselves. When a local jury in Dundalk acquitted an alleged smuggler accused of causing injury to a guard in 1941, the exasperated district judge suggested an organisation of smugglers were defeating the law. The guards themselves, however, saw little reason to imagine such conspiracy. There is no doubt, but there are very few men in North Louth, at least, who have not, to some extent, perhaps in a very small way, at some time engaged in smuggling read the guard's report. It sounds a little bit like a confession. And would consequently have a sneaking regard for the smugglers, no matter in which direction they were working. It is very popular on this side to get white bread, white flour, coal, paraffin oil, 
while well, sugar and cigarettes, etc., go in the opposite direction. As Patrick Duffy recalled of his own Monaghan childhood, nobody was really innocent in the borderlands. It turned us all into petty criminals. But the border in this period also produced a folklore of less obvious veracity. It is not clear, for instance, whether a clever officer ever invited a young woman into a customs hut and told her to sit beside the fire until the butter melted and ran down her legs. But it is certainly difficult to believe that this trick was performed as often as it was retold. Tales such as these could capture something of the spirit of the trade without giving away the actual tricks and methods. And later they would also serve to anaesthetise against more painful memories. Probably the most popular of these legends, one that is still told regularly, concerns a man who crossed the border daily, either on a bicycle or wheeling a wheelbarrow, and usually carrying some sort of load, hay, turf, potatoes or vegetables. These goods fell into the category of exempt farm produce, local products that farmers and their servants were allowed to take across. But in the story, for whatever reason, the customs officials were unconvinced and subjected the traveller to regular searches. That they might have taken such a view would not have been surprising. Using non-dutiable cargo as a screen to conceal smuggled goods was an old trick. The very first smuggling case to come before the Southern Courts was that of Lawrence Howey, a small shopkeeper of Bridge Street, Dundalk, who appeared on Friday the 15th of June 1923, having been apprehended two weeks earlier while driving his pony and loaded cart. When Howey was stopped near Carricarnan border crossing, he explained that he had been delayed in the nearby northern town of Newry and produced documentation stating that he had in his possession a case of fruit, a case of soap, two cases of apples and two cases of oranges. At that time, all of this would have been perfectly legal, except that inside a container marked Lux, a false bottom masked two or three pounds of cigarettes, while another container labelled Lifebuoy Soap was found to be filled with the same product. Concealed in the fruit was eight pounds of hard confectionery. This may be the first, but was very far from the last offence of its type. In October 1923, for instance, Edith Coulson from Mahervilly, County Fermanagh, a young girl of respectable appearance, was convicted at Clonus, County Monaghan, of smuggling 1,800 cigarettes concealed under some eggs in a box. So, returning to the story, anyone who crossed the border daily, no matter how ostensibly innocent they might be, was liable to be stopped and searched and questioned. And so it goes. Certain that he was a smuggler, a charge that he would neither confirm nor deny, the meticulous officials rifled through his hay, turned over his turf, or emptied out his sacks of potatoes. Dogged as they were, they could not catch, it out, catch him out. As, he is, as it is told, this ritual continues until some change of circumstances. Either the man ceases to make his trips or, more often, one of the officers retires and on the day of retirement, or at some later stage, asks to be put out of his misery. What was it that you were up to all those years? Smuggling wheelbarrows. Or bicycles, as the case may be. Now, it's difficult to overstate the popularity of this joke in border areas. It crops up in history books, local and oral histories, and even featured in the song 
No Train to Cavan by folk singer Lisa O'Neill. At one for Manor wedding a couple of years ago where I sort of got into conversation with various people about what I do for a living, I was told the same joke five times by five different people at the same event. <laughs> and having first heard it as a child from my own grandfather, in whose version the smuggling, smuggler was wheeling his barrow south across the old bridge at Black Lion, and naively believed that he must have known the man in question, or it might even have been him, I decided to try to get to the bottom of it. Did it actually happen? Who was it? Where and when? Now, it turned out the joke was on me, but the truth itself is also interesting because the same story is told about the border between the US and Mexico, the border between France and Italy, and others throughout Europe and beyond. Worse still, almost identical tales of theft are attached to mines, factories, and various shipyards, including Harland and Wolfe in Belfast. So the latter alone suggests something interesting about the invention of tradition or traditions on this island, and more broadly about the universal appeal of a certain kind of subversive humour, James C. Scott's hidden transcripts, or not so hidden in this case, at least hidden in plain sight. The earliest version of the specifically smuggling story that I was able to find is a piece of fake news or propaganda from 1954 from an ostensibly factual US newspaper account of post-war but still pre-war Berlin and life in that divided city. Disillusioned East Berliners smuggling wheelbarrows past the corrupt red border guards. The post-war Western mind could call on few more menacing images than that of the Iron Curtain. And the Cold War gradually displaced the legacy of British Empire as the principal international framework through which the Irish border was understood. As Kieran Rankin has noted in the early 1920s, Owen McNeill's future Boundary Commission colleague, Unionist Representative Joseph Fisher, had described Donegal as a hostile Afghanistan on our northwest frontier. And as late as the 1950s, when, during the IRA's border campaign, Eugene and Margaret McCabe built a bypass across their farm to avoid the spikes used to close a nearby other unapproved border road crossing, extended family dubbed their private road the Khyber Pass. <laughs> but around the same time, in 1956, the Northern Ireland government issued a pamphlet, Why the Border Must Be, in which it warned that Communism is not the only threat to freedom. Equating Dublin's Catholic moral censorship to that of the Soviet Union, it promised to its American audience to hold the bridgehead so that one day the freedom which is here in Northern Ireland, Great Britain and the United States, will lighten the whole world. When violence returned to the border a little over a decade later, and in the long decades that followed, as the troubles themselves made international headlines, Security checks and military installations were most often compared by locals to Checkpoint Charlie. And for those who sought to uh, maintain cross-border roads in the face of repeated closure, principally by the British Army, the inner German border provided a constant point of reference. <clears throat> Recently, when Pettigo businessman Martin Eves spoke to The Guardian, he too reached back to this imagery describing Brexit as like the Berlin Wall approaching. But when the actual Berlin Wall came down, then the most visible border in Europe, came down in 1989, some began to predict 
a borderless world in which there would be no longer be any role for territorial sovereignty or barriers to trade. For some, the, a new world and even the end of history seemed to beckon. At the same time, new borders were being created in what had been the Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia. And the fallout from the 11th of September 2001 did much to deflate the optimism of this, the rhetoric of this period. So while the first decade of the 21st century came to be dominated by debates about war, terrorism, security and civil liberties, the second has witnessed growing hostility to migrants, renewed forms of ethnic and separatist nationalisms, Brexit and Donald Trump's plan for a border wall. But until 2016, in Ireland, things still appeared to be going the other way. The establishment of the EU single market in 1993 saw the customs stations on the border finally fall into disuse just three months short of 70 years since they were first erected. And as that decade continued, ceasefires and agreement put an end to 40 years of bitter conflict. So while the peace process and the peace of prisons, parades and policing continued to pose problems for David Cameron's predecessors, <laughs> those who could still mind the long queues, who could still remember queuing at customs posts and army checkpoints, experienced a transformation. When the Senator George Mitchell Peace Bridge across the border was opened in 1999 to replace the Achillane Bridge blown up by loyalist paramilitaries in 1972, one adjacent resident described a previous 12-mile journey to reach fields that were only on the other side. While the troubles... Sorry, I've tried to switch that off. While the troubles certainly left deep scars, all along the border, petty problems such as these had been erased. From the earliest Ordnance Survey maps, the Murray's, the Murray's Border House stood long enough to make it appear, to, to, to appear on Google Street View. Its thatch having given way to slate and whitewashed walls to pebble dash. Once again, it was captured twice, along with Fermanagh in 2009 and with Cavan a year later. When sadly it was knocked down thereafter to effectively extend the forecourt of what is now Cassidy's petrol station by a couple of yards or metres, depending on which side you measure it from, <laughs> it might have been taken as a metaphor for the border. For all practical purposes, save for small differences in the price of fuel and the availability of legal fireworks, the peace process and European integration made it appear that at that time to be vanishing into memory. We may try to forget our history, wrote the Irish historian A.T.Q. Stewart at the turn of the millennium, but it will not forget us. In December 1919, introducing the recommendations of the Long Commission to Parliament, the recommendations that would lead to the Government of Ireland Act and to partition, Lloyd George remarked that sometimes when both Britain and Ireland seem to be approaching towards friendship, some untoward incident sweeps them apart and the quarrel begins again. And nearly 100 years since Winston Churchill lamented the integrity of our, of our quarrel, it is on the dreary staples of Fermanagh and Tyrone that Westminster's warring factions have again chosen to hang their hats. Both history, as 
conventionally understood and political dispute have returned to the Irish border. It may yet be the site where Britain's relationship with Ireland and the wider European Union is determined. And yesterday someone posed the question, how do you memorialise something like partition and what should be its monument? Well, as we approach the centenaries of deadly sectarian strife, civil war and separation, it may yet be marked by the return of border controls and customs posts. If so, they may well arrive again on April Fool's Day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this History Hub podcast. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, SoundCloud and many other podcasting apps, such as Podcast Republic. If you enjoy our content, please rate and review our channel as it helps others to find out about our work.